Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hang Up and Listen is sponsored by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper mattresses come with free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. And right now, get $50 toward any mattress by visiting casper.com slash hangup and using the promo code hangup. Hi, I'm Richard Deitch, host of the Sports Illustrated Media Podcast. Hey, everyone. I'm Maggie Gray, host of The Gray Area. Hi, I'm Ted Keith, host of the SI Vault Podcast. For more than 60 years, Sports Illustrated has championed its brand of quality sports journalism. Now SI has a new partnership, one that helps us tell the stories that matter to your life through today's mobile channels. So as of today, all 11 Sports Illustrated podcasts are joining the Panoply Network with more new titles on the way soon. Visit SI.com slash podcasts for more info. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of August 17th, 2015. On this week's show, we'll be joined by Grantland's Brian Curtis to talk about Jason Day's victory at the PGA Championship and another outstanding performance by Jordan Spieth, the sports media's favorite, most well-behaved young gentleman. Then we'll talk about a less well-behaved young gentleman, I.K. and Impali, the fellow who punched his New York Jets teammate Geno Smith in the face and was then punished by immediately being signed by the Buffalo Bills and Rex Ryan. Finally, Sports Illustrated's Tim Layden will talk to us about Nick Simmons, the American 800-meter runner who's not going to the track and field world championships because of a dispute about clothes and sponsorship money and freedom and truth and the American way. 
Joining me in Washington, D.C. is a man who stands for all those things and more. It's Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hi, Josh. And with us from New York, it's Mike Pesca, host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist, with Mike Pesca, a man who did not get his newspapers this morning. That's true. I get my newspapers <laughs> in newspaper form. I'm funny like that. How many but, papers do you get? I get two papers. I have a, a system of delivery that uh, boggles the mind, but today that both the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, or perhaps other people in my building, decided to boggle the, uh, the system that I have by stealing the newspapers. It is pretty, it is based on trust, perhaps a little too much trust. You know, I was thinking about this. <laughs> they were doing that. They were they were talking about all the all the uh, horrible uh, vulnerabilities with tech stuff, and some hacker like hijacked a self driving car or whatever, and you know your account to get Wall Street Journal subscription can be hacked. Someone just steals it from my front door. Like no one's worried about that. I give the guy who gives me a coffee my credit card. They steal that. All right. Anyway, this is the sort of thing I t- talk about on the gist. The gist. The gist. Slay a podcast with Mike Pesca. Yeah. I feel like there is a competitive sort of nature to the amount of newspapers that one gets kind of similar to people talking about how little they sleep. Mm-hmm. I'll, so, tell you, I'll tell you exactly what that's like. I once went to a woman's office who had a job very tangentially related to news, and she had the three cable news channels above her desk so she couldn't even <laughs> see them going on a loop. This is What this woman does is she, like, she sets up public lectures that are of a nonfiction <laughs> variety. There's no reason she needs to be uh, tuned in on the latest on that flight that went down in Papua New Guinea. Anyway. I'm just saying that you're not looking to impress anybody. You don't have the Christian Science Monitor on your, right. you know, front step just to try to pad the totals. Do you have right. the Chattanooga News Free Press? No, I subscribe to that. Wrongly thinking it was free. And it, Pesca uh, does now in his new office. He's got a crawl going around the walls. <laughs> I got a zipper. <laughs> zipper. In our bonus segment for Slate Plus members this this week, we will not continue this conversation. Uh, we're going to talk about the supposed scourge of participation trophies and how they're making our children lamos to hear that bonus segment <laughs> and others like it on hang up and listen and various other slate shows, not just hang up and listen. I have a lot to say about that. Other shows that talk about lamos and lamo related products sign up for slate plus at slate.com slash hang up plus and get a free two week trial at slate.com slash hang up plus also an announcement. Uh, we talk about the panoply network here slate's podcast network we're a part of it other shows are a part of it and starting today a bunch of shows from sports illustrated are part of it too that's cool that's exciting mm. there are 11 shows mm-hmm. uh richard deitch is up in there we like him john wertheim uh, friend of the show yeah bunch of good shows bunch of good people panoply.fm slash sports you can find the shows or si.com slash podcasts over the weekend at Wisconsin's Whistling Straits Golf Course, a very golf courseily named golf course, Australian Jason Day won his first major title, setting a major championship record by finishing at 20 under par. The man who finished in second place, Jordan Spieth, set a record of his own, finishing a cumulative 54 under at this year's four majors. Both of those marks were better by a single stroke than records previously set by Tiger Woods who missed the cut for the third major in a row. As Karen Krauss noted in the New York Times, when Woods was in his mid-20s, he had no one in his peer group to push him. Now the top three in golf's world rankings, Spieth, Rory McIlroy, and Day, have an average age of 25 years old. 
Joining us now is our senior golf, sports media, Texas, and etiquette correspondent, Grantland's <laughs> Brian Curtis. Hello, Brian. Howdy. Uh, thank you for that very Texas greeting. I, yeah. I feel well situated to talk golf with you now. My favorite story about Sunday's final round was by Kevin Van Valkenburg on ESPN, which was about how Jordan Spieth was gracious in defeat and described a conversation that Spieth and Day had after the 14th hole. Uh, Day made a good shot. Spieth says, that was a hell of a three, man. Seriously, hell of a three. Um, wow. <laughs> Thanks, man, Day said. Hell of a four by you there, too. Yeah, well, I needed it, Spieth said. Such a great three by you, man. Awesome. Wow. Wow. So, so basically how golf conversations go is say <laughs> hell of a and then a smallish number. <laughs> hell of a five, good six. You see that guy's four? Oh, what a three. Dustin, so, jo Dustin Johnson made a hell of an eight on the first hole. You make enough fours, you get to marry a ten. <laughs> <laughs> so, Brian, the premise of this article was basically that Day was touched by an angel that Spieth told him it was okay. it's okay for you to win your first major. Day had had these problems closing out tournaments in the past. Spieth was, um, you know, someone who seemed like he couldn't help but win. And Spieth just gave the Aussie his permission to go ahead and take this championship. It was an interesting way to kind of position these two golfers. Yeah, it's really funny. I mean, I was also struck at 17, uh, 17th green when Spieth gave the big thumbs up. Mm -hmm. Day after his first putt, right? That we were talking. The conversation on CBS was all about uh, Jordan Spieth's niceness, rather than yeah. the fact that Jason Day was finally going to break through and win a major. I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, I think it was interesting because in Kevin's piece, he wrote about how he was rooting for Spieth because our little carnivorous corner of the media has become all about you know embracing bad boys and kind of scoffing at uh, niceness and sportsmanship, which may be true in some sense, but I think in golf. Uh, that's not at all. That has not happened at all. Bad boys have not been embraced, and golf really values this gentleman golfer kind of kind of thing. I was also yesterday, by the way, when uh, when Day was giving his post uh, round press conference, the Golf Channel was uh, putting all the tweets from golfers uh, up on the screen, congratulating him, and there were like a bunch of successories posters, you know. Yeah. And uh, Roy, Roy McIlroy would say, I was so inspired by the fact that uh, day one and that speed took away his number one ranking, which I find to be completely ridiculous. I don't think Roy was inspired uh, by those uh, by those events at all. So to me, it just shows this this sense of golf, you know, that like we really want these guys to be gentlemen. We really have this dream that they're really nice guys and they're not mad at all. And, you know, they and as soon as they're uh, they know they're licked, uh, they they start complimenting each other. And that's me what came through with all that stuff. Wait, what about Generation Balls and Ricky Fowler doing a boy <laughs> band video? I guess golf just kind of sucked uh, some wind through its teeth and said, well, if this is what it takes to grow the sport. And then when Spieth won, it's like, ah, it wasn't what it took. Yeah, but it's like, but Spieth is the, is the, is the dream, right? Because he's young and, and handsome and all that stuff. And then he's a really nice guy on the other end. And so is Ricky Fowler, right? Even though he, you know, wears weird hats and stuff like and that. Orange. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's sort of like, big. it's big amazing hats. to me how much that stuff gets fetishized still, but that's the big deal. And, and by the way, about that speed stuff, I mean, it's really easy to be a nice guy uh, when you know you're beaten, you know, at that point, there's nothing to do, but be gracious. You know, you're not going to storm off the course and refuse to play the last five holes. I mean, at that point, he knew right. pretty much he wasn't going to win the tournament. But Tiger would have Tiger would have sneered. Everything is uh, seen Tiger through a sneered. prism of Tiger. Yes, exactly. Yeah, but Tiger would have at least come out and tried to, you know, for five seconds to fake it after the round, right? And say, you know, yeah. great win, blah, blah, blah. 
there's a little self-fulfilling prophecy here, too, in the way the media covers this stuff. As you pointed out in your, your profile of Spieth, which focused on the truth that he is a nice guy, that we that, that seems like everybody wants the nice guy. Like you said, we want this. We, we talk about Spieth's maturity and what a polite young man he is. And what did you call him? A Texas boy? A nice Texas boy? Good Texas nice boy? Young, nice young Texan, yeah. Nice young Texan. So isn't part of it just the simple fact that, you know, George, Jason Day looks like a nice guy and we can play up the fact that he came out of poverty and had a very difficult childhood? And Jordan Spieth, nice guy, great family. I mean, very privileged family, but great family. Uh, writers like John Feinstein, as you point out, are going to look for the secrets to Jordan Spieth's niceness. Feinstein said it was volunteering at his sister's school, a sister who has a neurological disorder. So we find in our stars the qualities that we decide we want to write about and in the tiger era it was brashness and determination and laser focus even if everyone was seething as they were typing <laughs> yeah that's that's exactly right and i think the ideal for the for your sports writer is the athlete wears two masks right they have a game face on we don't want them you know yucking it up on the course and then as soon as they get into the interview room they they transfer immediately into all shucks mode and Tiger was not quite capable of accomplishing that, right? He couldn't get into the interview room and then pretend, ah, you know, just me playing a game and having a great time, blah, 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 and I give credit to the other golfers. He could never do that. Spieth does that probably as well as any athlete, major superstar athlete mm -hmm. right now in the world. And, and, as, yeah, and as you I, notice in his piece, he lapses into the in first-person plural when talking about himself. And he, he yeah. did it yesterday. He, he did, did it, it I noticed, like and I thought time. of you. He did it during his post-match interview. We got a couple, yeah, we had a great round, right, and all that kind of stuff. And you saw him yeah. yesterday. This is the nicest, the best loss I've ever had, I think he said, right? He said, turns today uh, when they're signing their cards at the end and says, there's nothing I could do out there. You were just so great, you know, meaning you were so great and uh, you couldn't beat me. Yeah, and that, and that quality, it's funny because I think Jason Day, you mentioned, is a really damaged guy. You know, his dad died when he was 12 years old. He was an alcoholic before he was a teenager in a much repeated biographical point before he sort of went to a golf academy and got his life together and all that kind of stuff. I mean, he's, to me, he's just exactly the opposite. I, mean, I don't think you'd ever call Spieth damaged, just the opposite. And, and Day certainly is, and has sort of pulled himself into a place now where he can be the smiling nice guy, but he'd be the first to tell you that he wasn't that guy uh, 15 years ago. Let's also be honest here that a lot of this is driven by the post-Tiger assessment. Um, if Jordan Spieth were finishing, you know, in the top 10, as opposed to having gone on this remarkable run this year, we'd be saying, oh, God, he's pretty bland. You know, his answers are kind of anodyne. Yeah, he's he's open and he does answer the questions and he looks you in the eye, but he's not really saying much. But because he's so successful, we are admiring of his equanimity and his politesse and his, you know, his his good old boy or just good boy behavior. And it's all in contrast to what a dick Tiger was. <laughs> That's definitely true. But he is, I will say the one thing, and I think I put this out of the story, is he is really forthcoming about the golfiness of what yeah. happened out on the course. Uh, you know, and it's really like kind of jarring when you, because no, if you talk to Derek Jeter at his locker afterwards, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm really sure he's not breaking down uh, the pitches that he saw in a bat 
the way Jordan Spieth is. Maybe. Well, that's a great example. I've talked, right. I've talked to Jeter's locker, and he's the last guy in the world. like, I just look and hit it. And I once talked to Cal Ripken at his locker, and he was incredibly forthcoming about the details. And I think the best athletes to talk to, and I think I've said this before, are the ones that are willing to explain their craft. They are experts at what they do, and their ability to detail what they do is so enlightening. So that, I think, is Jordan Spieth's greatest attribute, and let's hope he doesn't give it up as he continues to succeed. And because that flatters sports writers, doesn't it? It it tells the sports writer, you understand a little bit about the sport, even if we're sitting there recording and saying, well, I'll make sense of this when I listen to the tape later, right? But, uh, you know, it doesn't say, oh, you guys are idiots and you'll never understand, which is uh, what a lot of guys do. Right. It's respectful, but it's also respectful of the potential reader or listener who, you know, wants to understand the the craft better. Last um, question. You've covered a lot of sports media stuff for Grantland, and you've you know, been in NBA locker rooms, you've been in the, you know, golf press room. Do you have a sense of how writers' relationships with athletes and their perceived likability of athletes affects coverage across various sports? Is golf very similar to the NBA in that way? Do, you know, does Jordan Spieth get, you know, good coverage, you know, because he's liked and it would be the same if he was a basketball player? Is there something different about golf? Uh, that's a, that's a really good question. I think, I think in golf today, there is a certain, and maybe this is this, you could say this across sports, but in golf, golfers talk a lot, you know, like Jordan Spieth, when he shows up at a major talks for half an hour, uh, or even a tournament in, in the, like the one in Akron I went to a week ago. And then he talks every day after the tournament. And if he, if he's leading or if he wins, he gives big, fairly meaty interviews after rounds and stuff like that. So they do talk to these guys a lot. Um, and I think they get with most of them some kind of some kind of uh, rapport. But yeah, um, to how much it affects coverage. I mean, I think it probably is a little bit similar to everybody. Is like when you have a superstar, this is the guy we got, you know. And you're not going to, um, you know, maybe all around the fringes. You know, your column is a little more negative here and there. You're not quite as adulatory as some of the speed coverages. But really, you know, you're going to go with the flow because you've got to go with the superstar, even if he's a jerk. I mean, I find it striking that a lot of this Tiger stuff has come out uh, once Tiger fell off leaderboards for good, yeah. right? Now you tell us <laughs> that it was imp- he was impossible to deal with. You know, Pete, certainly people did. I think John Feinstein's one of them. People did that at the beginning, too, and said, this guy's not, this guy's kind of a jerk and all that stuff. But a lot of this comes out after the fact. And I think a lot of the biggest sports writer imperative across any sport is, this guy's a superstar. This is the guy people want to read about. And this is what I'm going to give them. And I'm not going to, you know, belabor the fact that maybe they're not so nice to me after the round. Brian Curtis is a nice young Texan who writes about nice young Texans for Grantland, including Jordan Spieth. Brian, thanks. Welcome, baby. Now it is time for a word from our sponsor, Casper, which is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry, and the mattress industry is an industry that needs revolutionizing. The mattresses are expensive in the store. Casper cuts the cost of dealing with those resellers and the showrooms. They pass the savings directly on to you. The Casper mattress also is better technologically than the kind that you could buy in the store. It's a new hybrid mattress that combines premium latex foam with memory foam, double foam. You got to get both kinds of foam for a good mattress. And Casper is cheaper too. Mattresses can often cost well over $1,500. But Casper mattresses cost between $500 for a twin-size mattress, 
seven fifty for a full sized, eight fifty for a queen, and nine fifty for the king size mattress that Stefan Fatsis deserves. Buying a Casper mattress is also completely risk free, free delivery and returns within a hundred day period. So you can get to know your mattress, not just lie on it for five minutes in a weird, not very well lit room. Or worse, the very the very well lit room. Even worse. The lighting is just not right is the thing that you should come away with. That would be a mattress store innovation. Turn off the lights. <laughs> Special offer to listeners of our show. Get in get in whatever room you want. Well lit, not at all lit, medium lit. Go on your internet and get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash hangup using the promo code hangup. That's casper.com slash hangup, promo code hangup. All right, so Mike Pesca, you're a fan of the New York Jets, right? Uh, yeah, I'm familiar with their work. Yeah, Fireman <laughs> Mike. So you're probably familiar with this facet of their work. Geno Smith, supposed starting quarterback, gets punched in the face, broken jaw, out mm-hmm. six to ten weeks. The perpetrator was his teammate, I.K. and Impali, backup linebacker. And Impali was supposedly, reportedly mad that Smith had bailed on his agreement to go to Ann and Polly's football camp. Ann and Polly had dished out 600 bucks to get Smith, your plane fare, your limo ride. So Smith didn't pay him back. Other reports say that Ann and Polly was kind of a laughing stock in the locker room. Hey, has Gino paid you back? Ha ha ha. Things escalated, punch in the face. So the interesting thing to me about this story, Mike, is that Geno Smith seems to be getting uh, a lot of the blame, and a lot of Jets fans seem to be happy that he's not the quarterback anymore. And then the Jets got mad that Geno was seen throwing after his surgery. Geno was trying to show his commitment to excellence. In a parking lot, right? Yeah. With eye black stickers on (laughs) under his eyes. Mm -hmm. Geno Smith cannot do anything right. Can't do anything right on the field. He can't get any sympathy when he's punched in the face. He can't get any sympathy or respect when he tries to come back quickly from surgery. This is, I don't know what this is. This is the New York Jets. This is New York Jets football. That's right. The fans <laughs> are saying to Gino, just, just sip your insure for the next six, six weeks. <laughs> we'll have former Harvard boy Ryan Fitzpatrick to pin our hopes on. Statistically speaking, the better quarterback. So most Jets fans are like, good, good. I mean, such a shame, but good. And then you have the local tabloids playing teacher or cop out on workman's comp who is seen lifting heavy bags of groceries at the store splash that on the front page that was Gino in the parking lot then there are two other overlapping things which are there's a lot of uh, really stupid criticism about Gino getting socked in the jaw shows his lack of leadership Chris Carter said this Boomer Esiason basically said this and no on the other hand it does seem that not when you're the quarterback of the team having a seething team member who you stiffed out of 600 bucks is not a good strategy and also I don't know if you are the leader of the team, if you don't pay the guy back, just pay the guy back if if that story is true. Mm-hmm. Or maybe he was showing good leadership and doing what was best for the team, because as I said, Ryan Fitzpatrick will most likely be the better quarterback. <laughs> the most common introduction to a sentence that I've read in the last week about this story, and this is from ESPN.com, it 
stands in for for many similar stories. No one deserves a broken jaw, but, but... <laughs> <laughs> the, the, there is some truth, Mike, in what you're saying about the quarterback's job inside the locker room. You know, for for better or worse, I mean, de facto or de jure, the quarterback is perceived by everyone on the team. You know, there is an offense-defense bifurcation in the locker room. I mean, they're on usually the offense is on one side, the defense is on the other. Usually, they don't intermingle very much, um, except at football camps for the youth in Pflugerville. In Pflugerville, but there is a role that the quarterback plays, and the quarterbacks who are liked. And respected, but liked first and foremost, tend to get, uh, you know, tend to have outsized influence among their teammates. So Gino being a dick to a teammate and not writing him a check for 600 bucks just to quell whatever, you know, simmering emotions might be, uh, might be developing there is probably not a good move. So there is a fascinating New York Times profile of an Impali who's, Backstory is interesting and more complex, and you get to know this guy. Ben Spiegel did a good job explaining where he came from in Texas, his upbringing, and you know the fact that he's had some trouble in his past. But everybody around him, coaches, you know, high school teammates, college teammates, just talk about what a great guy he was, what a hard worker. And then there's just this fight that happened when he was in college at Louisiana Tech that's just explained away, and people saying, "Oh, it's not that big a deal that he punched a guy." outside a bar. And this fight, too, seems to have been explained away. Rex Ryan, his former coach, immediately signed him to play for the Buffalo Bills. Mostly and Ryan to, to a, troll the Jets. But no, Ryan at a press conference, we'll talk about that. I, don't, I don't think it was mostly to troll the Jets. I think Ryan knew him as the coach, felt like he liked him and understood him. And he said to reporters at the press conference, you know, I don't know anything about what happened in the fight. He didn't do any diligence do or undo and he just didn't bother to learn anything and this to because me because he bigger... because he knew ik and and trusted his character right right this, so th this is the thing that sorry to interrupt but this is how rex ryan operates he really prizes w that he's seen right. the person he brought all these guys from the ravens over to the jets how good you are in terms of empirical data doesn't matter as much as how much heart you have it's turned out to work out for him and he was a guy who took a risk with ik and it was a good risk he was a decent um return on investment in terms of his draft strategy about what he committed to the team so separating this event if you told rex ryan hey ik is second round draft picks available for nothing, he'd have taken them. So that's what I think happened. This to me is a bigger story about how the NFL works is that you can punch a guy in college and it's a red flag and you get drafted anyway. And then you punch a guy in the locker room and it only takes one team or one coach who believes in you or has a good relationship with you and you get picked up again. And it's the sort of boys will beat boys and every kind of act of violence. It's not just a punch in the face. There are mitigating circumstances. And sure, I'm sure that there were mitigating circumstances, well, he, but it depends on who the player is and it depends on, you know, who the coach is. But this stuff is just kind of, you know, like it wouldn't be in other industries just because of how we believe football players should act and that it shows toughness and that he doesn't back down. Well, and they just came off the a practice field where they were beating each other up for two hours. I mean, this is the culture of football. And to be shocked that a teammate who is being taunted and having a finger stuck in his face and feels... We don't know that he was... 
Well, that he whatever. Had a finger stuck in his face. We don't know that for a fact. We do not. We've no. read that. We've read that. It's been denied, it's by, been denied. by certain others. So right. we don't. We well, don't know. So we don't in do any it. case, something precipitated Ik and Impale's fist to Geno Smith's jaw, and we shouldn't forget that. What football players do for a living is be aggressive, and they are told to be aggressive on the field. They are told to be violent on the field, and there are times when they can't control that off the field. Well, the other kind of stories that I've been following that are a bit in this vein are— And that's not to excuse what they do off the field. Junior Gallette, he was on the Saints. The Saints mm -hmm. cut him recently. He was accused of domestic violence. That charge didn't go anywhere because— the woman decided at a certain point down the road not to pursue it. There's also a video of him hitting another woman with a belt. The Saints decided to get rid of the guy. Uh, Washington signed him and Washington GM said he's half crazy, but that's OK. That's a football player. Then, you know, a couple of years down the road, the Jonathan Martin, Richie Incognito story, the bullied Jonathan Martin is out of the league. He retired. Richie Incognito named a starter by Rex Ryan. And it all just it depends on the context. Ray Rice still hasn't been signed by a team, but Richie Incognito, he kind of was laundered through, you know. He did his time. Anger management and all. And now we hear all the stories about what a good guy he is. And in the end, when it all kind of comes out in the wash, Richie Incognito is perceived as a guy who can help you win football games because he's tough. And Jonathan Martin, he made the choice to walk away. But based on those stories and his reputation in the league, he was not a guy who was perceived as someone who could win you football games because he was not tough. But For all that has happened in the last couple of years in terms of domestic violence and in terms of the incognito report. Stefan's pointing his finger at me. I am pointing as three talking. fingers at you as yeah. I'm pointing at you. Um, the one thing that remains constant is that the culture of NFL front offices has not changed. You read those quotes from Washington's GM, and it's all, he was in my face, and I was in his face, and we were five inches away from each other, and I can judge a man's character when his nose is five inches from mine. Um, watch the new Hard Knocks, which we might talk about in the next few weeks. Bill O'Brien, the head coach of the Houston Texans, is another sort of bombastic asshole. asshole. Um, and as long as there are bombastic assholes in the NFL, these players are going to be signed. As long as there are coaches who cannot make a final determination that we can find someone of close to or equal value and ability they will continue to sign Richie Incognito and Junior Gallette and anyone else who has transgressed and wants a second chance or a third or a fifth chance. Well, first of all, it, it doesn't not make sense. I mean, some of it is bluster and some of it is, you know, in the fourth quarter on a muddy field, you have to play through a knee injury and do something crazy, which is hurl your body at a 350 pound guy to try to tackle a 250 pound guy. I mean, that takes whatever your word is, grit, insanity, meanness. I think meanness is something that's not only perceived to be prized. Actually, if we could isolate the destructive elements of meanness and the 
directed elements of meanness, there's a good form of meanness that really helps a football team and gets fans pumped up and probably gets translated into the composure of coaches. But the thing that this points out to me is that we're told with, oh, any story like a gay football player, gay baseball player, the the distraction angle, or with Arian Foster and his, you know, talking about being an atheist. We're told that, you know, we outsiders don't understand how professional and how focused these athletes are. And I think that's largely true. But I heard Tim Kuhn saying that, you know, the reason Arian Foster is not going to be a distraction is that these are professional guys who know not to be distracted like this and that they are adults and that they are professionals. And yet, on the other hand, we see what we see from Hard Knocks and we see what we see from Geno Smith's draw. Yeah. And I guess the thing that bugs me the most, and it's taken this conversation for me to figure it out, so thank you for bearing with me, (laughs) is that when these guys are signed, I totally recognize everything that you said, Mike, about Incognito being a better player and maybe his insanity helping in the fourth quarter. But we're told that they're good people when they're signed, um, that he's changed. And they rationalize it by making those statements about it's not because he's a good football player and because he can do these things for us in the fourth quarter. It's because I looked into his eyes and he's a good person. And maybe that's why we should appreciate what the Washington GM said, because he said we signed Glad because he's half crazy. And that at <laughs> least is honest, I guess. But I mean, it does valorize the wrong things, but he's not trying to convince us that, you know, I talked to Junior Glad and he's learned from his mistakes and he's a good person now. And that's why he's going to be good for us when, you know, it's time to but win is, the game. But isn't that because front offices have been brainwashed into believing that this is what fans want to hear and what the media wants to hear, that I've looked into a man's soul and I've judged him and therefore he deserves to play hear, left I don't, guard on I don't want to hear it. I'm, team? Ra- I'm raising my hand. You're raising so your hand. If we're taking a vote of America, I'm just voting against. I mean, I'm all in favor of honesty. And the most honest thing to say in all of these situations is that he's a better football player than the guy that I have playing right tackle right now. And I would have more respect for the general manager who said that than the one who said my nose was five inches from his and I could tell that he wants to play. When the track and field world championships begin in Beijing later this week, the United States's Nick Simmons will not be there. Simmons, who got a silver medal at the 2013 Worlds, won the 800 meters at the U.S. championships, earning himself a spot on the U.S. team, but he refused to sign a document proffered by USA Track and Field that read, in part, I will dress appropriately and respectfully for all team functions, wearing the designated team uniforms provided by USATF. And it is very important for you to know that the word team was capitalized <laughs> as, it was in, as it is in all documents of this nature. Those team uniforms are provided by Nike, while Simmons is sponsored by the running company Brooks. This may seem like a petty dispute, but as Tim Layden explained in Sports Illustrated, this is a much bigger story, one that cuts to the heart of a sports battle for relevance and its athletes' battle for financial survival. Joining us now is Tim Layden, a senior writer for Sports Illustrated. How's it going, Tim? Hey, very good, guys. How are you? Uh, Good. And this is the story that begs for context, and thank you for providing it. In your SI piece, um, like I said in my intro, this seems like a very penny-andy dispute, but if you look at the history of the sport and you look at who Nick Simmons is, an iconoclast who has pushed for athletes to be compensated better and has pushed for himself to be compensated better, then the story makes a lot more sense. Well, there's an interesting thing about the story, which is I think the timing with which Nick acted here 
He could have done this in Beijing. Um, he could have gone over there and tested the rule and um, just worn his Brooks gear everywhere except when he was competing. But I think Nick, either of his own accord or by getting some good advice from somebody, decided that you know the days before the PGA Championship and before uh, Usain Bolt steps on a track in Beijing might be a good time to uh, to, to take a stand here. Um, well, he's also he's a, he's a forceful voice also because of who he is. I mean, this is a guy that has sort of auctioned off space on his shoulder to sponsors to to generate more revenue. Um, who has promoted a company that he started, Run Gum. Um, he went on a date with Paris Hilton once, as a jury longman reported in the New York Times. So this is a guy who does have, you know, self-interest, but he also clearly has the interest of his sport and does feel aggrieved at the way track is structured. And in track, this, this presumably amateur organization, USA Track and Field, which is uh, run by many, many volunteers, governs these professional athletes who are trying to generate six-figure incomes and have the capacity to train on a full-time basis. So he is making a statement. For sure. And, and, he's, and he's done a great job of that. He was one of the first athletes to challenge uh, the IAAF, which is the International Federation, um, to challenge their rules about logos on your body and on your uniform. And he did start Run Gum, which is a caffeinated gum, which uh, I, I don't know how successful it's been, but it's, it's, it's gotten some traction in the running world. And there's no question, Nick is a, he's a smart guy who has challenged the status quo in the sport um, in ways that track and field athletes have periodically been doing, going all the way back to Steve Prefontaine, who's, one of the, who's the name that has been uh, invoked a lot in comparison to Nick. So there's, you're, you're right, there's no question that he... He was a good choice to do this. Um, he's, he's iconoclastic. He's, he's telegenic. Um, he's popular among the young people in the sport. And by the young people, I mean the, the preteens and teenagers who, who run high school track and cross country and who are a huge part of the sport's fan base, although it's not certain that they stay in the fan base after they stop competing themselves. But in all those ways, he's the perfect choice to, to take on USA track and field here. Uh, do people you talk with inside USA Track and Field have any sympathy for that for him? I suppose there are certainly some who just say stop being a prima donna and be a team member. But you know, are there any uh, fissures in their stance? A couple things happened. Um, one is that Nick refused to sign the uh, statement of conditions, which is the document he was handed after winning the U.S. Championship. That's the one that said you'll wear the uniform at all functions. So he refused to sign that. He says he didn't sign it at the World Indoor Championships last winter. USA Track and Field says he did through some sort of electronic system that he doesn't recall being part of. The other thing is that he was sent a letter a few weeks later, which was much more forceful, uh, which said that you won't even bring any clothing to the world championships that doesn't have nike or usa on it and yeah i think the line the line in the letter was accordingly please pack only all caps Correct. team usa nike or non-branded apparel Correct. now it turns out that in his conversations with max siegel the ceo of usa track and field nick was given assurance that that letter was not going to be enforced and was in fact unenforceable and I asked Nick about that. That all came to light late last week after I wrote about Nick. And uh, I called Nick and said, look, you, were you told that they weren't going to enforce that letter, which was the more forceful document? And his response was, yes, I was told that, but it wasn't enough. They still wouldn't define what was a, an official function. So to me, the, I, I think USA Track and Field 
felt that that may help shift the uh, the tide of public opinion, whatever it is in regarding track and field, uh, a little bit more toward USA Track and Field for being a, at least a little bit lenient, and and that they feel that Nick understands having been on several World Championship teams, several Olympic teams that. There's always a gray area there, and that you can you can wear your Brooks gear out to get coffee. On the other hand, Nick says he did that in Poland last winter and was chastised for it. So it's really hard to say. Um, you know, they don't have a lot of sympathy for him because they need Nike's money, is what it amounts to. You mentioned Steve Prefontaine earlier, uh, Tim. And in the 1970s, for people who don't know Prefontaine, he was a, America's top track athlete. He died tragically in a, in a car accident in 1975. But Prefontaine was one of the first, if not the first, track athlete to take on the system. And the system at the time was the AAU, the Amateur Athletic Union. Um, and, and Prefontaine at one point was going to, I think in 1974, he was going to skip the AAU championships. He told everyone that he wasn't going to do that. Um, he was offered money to turn pro, but turned it down because he worried that it would threaten his Olympic eligibility. Put the history of track and field into context for us. Where does Simmons fit in in this struggle for athletes to be included in the pie? Really, not much has happened since 1973 to 75. The only thing that's happened is that this perceived amateur sport, which the public perceives many Olympic sports as still amateur. Now the very top athletes in track and field can make a living. They can make a very good living, um, millions of dollars a year in some cases. Um, when you have a Carl Lewis or obviously Usain Bolt who makes 20 or $30 million a year uh, through sponsorship with Puma and other things. But for the vast majority of track and field athletes, it's still an amateur sport, and they're still fighting that same battle. Although it's perfectly legal for them to be paid, the marketplace isn't paying many of them at a, at a level. You know, you can define poverty level, you can define sustenance level, but you know, there are many track and field athletes that have made world championship teams that are being paid fifteen or $20,000 a year by their primary sponsor and given gear and, and plane tickets and things like that. So I guess you'd say... There are guys like Leo Manzano who won an Olympic medal who couldn't get a sponsor at all, right? Really, yeah. I mean, Prefontaine and his generation broke down the walls of amateurism, but, but it, hasn't, it hasn't gone terribly far forward from that for the athletes. For the Federation, they make a lot of money. So it's a different discussion. You know, I think one reason why things don't change in amateur sports is because the shelf life for the athlete is so small and you have to be great, but then you're mm -hmm. great for such a short time. And here in Simmons, we have a guy who's willing to take on a fight, but also he's 31. He's been through the battle before and he's still relatively at the top of his game and maybe could kind of uh, handicap his medal chances. But it just seems like we haven't gotten a figure like that. It's why it's so hard for the NCAA to reform you have a few years of eligibility and you right. want to be a good teammate and you know 90% of your attention is focusing on the sport so I do think he's pretty unique and I you know I know he gets a lot of criticism but I think that if you tick down the list he's kind of a perfect activist not a perfect human but if you could craft an activist for this cause I don't know that you'd do better than Nick Simmons what do you think no, I, I, that's fair, and I think really in terms of bringing the in bringing the situation to light and in trying to make the public aware of of the circumstances that that these athletes perform under, um, he is the perfect activist, and and 
and it's and what he's doing is important and, and I think his timing was very good and his timing in terms of his own career his timing in terms of this competition the only way it could have been better would be if it were a year from now on the eve of the Olympics and then this would have blown up to a much greater extent but what he's trying to do is important and he's he's holding USA track and fields feet to the fire to try and make them find a better way to compensate athletes um, the 24 year deal with Nike isn't going away but Again, one of his demands, as it were, is to try and get USA Track and Field to pay salaries to athletes, which is a hugely difficult issue because there's so many athletes and they perform at so many different levels with so much different level, so many different levels of public interest. But but he's essentially he's shining a light on a very troubled system, especially for the athletes, and um, and there's only good in that to be sure. Adam Nelson, uh, Olympic shot putter basically put it in these, these terms. He said, you've got an amateur system governing a professional sport. And Simmons pulled out a study that showed that the track federation, USA Track and Field, shares only 8% of its projected 2015 revenue of $43 million with the athletes compared to, you know, half or more in professional sports. Right. So where does the, where does the money go, I guess, is another question. This is where you get into creative accounting and, and one man's dollar is somebody else's 50 cents. Sure. You know, USA Track and Field says that that number is closer to 50% because they, they consider funds that are used to put on a meet, essentially, to pay the officials and to, and to rent the facility and to uh, defray television costs. They consider all those to be money paid to athletes. Because without those funds, there would be no meat, and the athletes would have nowhere to compete. Um, I think most people on a common-sense level would say, well, that money's not going to the athlete. It's not winding up in his bank account, so how can you say that that's athlete money? Um, right. It's like the NBA saying that revenue goes for to athletes, you know, the money that they use to put on games, you know, to hire the, yeah. the refs. Or to pay the gorilla to dunk <laughs> off a trampoline. It's, it's, not yeah. really a fair, um, it's not really a fair rendering of the money, but... Again, USA Track and Field, as Adam Nelson said, it's to a great extent more concerned with, with uh, enriching the federation than enriching the athletes. And, uh, and, and part of it really is the difficulty in, in coming up with a system to enrich those athletes. And they aren't, I, I don't see that in any way USA Track and Field is, is bureaucratically or intellectually prepared to do that, to set up a system where they pay every athlete who's on a national team. I just don't. Do you pay the hammer thrower the same amount as Justin Gatlin? I just, it's an incredibly complex problem. Right, and that's the same argument that's made about the NCAA, but just the fact that it's a hard problem doesn't mean that we should throw our hands up and not come up with a solution, right? Yeah. Tim Layden wrote about Nick Simmons and USA Track and Field and Nike and Brooks and the whole controversy in Sports Illustrated last week. Tim, thanks for joining us. Okay, thanks. Now it is time for After Balls, and Stefan mentioned Nick Simmons going on a date with Paris Hilton. Uh, Wait, but he did mention it in the context of he's got all these crazy things going on, or he's got these he's got these um, self promotional things going on, like his own gum and tattooing himself, and going on a date with Paris Hilton. I don't know if that's self promotional. Maybe maybe I'm naive. Well, we're talking about it. My God, it's working. So, Mike, you went to playerswives.com, which is my homepage. In your, my in your usual rotation, <laughs> and you discovered uh, something about uh, Simmons' date with Paris Hilton. 
Yes, he brought to the date a gift bag full of the color pink, including snowballs, Mr. Bubble Bubble Bath, hotel towel, so stole that, and a luggage tag. And then there's the other thing that was pink, a Timex watch. So it's weird to give jewelry on the first date, but I think Timex is okay. So those are all pink things he brought in a gift bag. Timex is forever. Yeah. Timex is the one-minute anniversary gift. (laughs) Uh, Mike, what is your pink gift bag? I was watching the Mets uh, all weekend lose to the Pirates in different and interesting ways. By the way, the Mets are probably the worst post-rain delay team in baseball. (laughs) They've been really killed by the rain delays. And it was an interesting rain delay on Sunday because I was watching the game in a very sunny, never once wet Manhattan, whereas they were playing in Flushing. And if you or John Rocker knows anything about the geography or distance, it's like, you know, 18 miles away, like the hour rain delay. Okay, so they come out of the rain delay, they blow the game. Another detail of the Mets game that I'm watching Mr. Met accuses Ron Darling, and this was weird. It was the TBS broadcast. Both broadcasts were going on. I was toggling back and forth. I was, I was, I was in glory of, of a sort. And uh, Mr. Met accused Ron Darling of messing up his fantasy team when, back when Ron Darling was a player. And then Ron Darling said, no, Mr. Met has it wrong. My playing career predated fantasy baseball. Uh-uh-uh, Ron. You were on one of my fantasy teams when I was in eighth grade. Not Oakland A's Ron Darling either. New York Met Ron Darling. Fantasy baseball certainly overlaps. was invented before Darling's career. But the thing that really got me was just looking at Travis Darno's uniform. And I noticed it started with a D, and an apostrophe, and the D was lowercase. And I began to really fixate on the D and asking myself, how many people start with a lowercase letter in baseball? I didn't even have to go that far. And when such questions come up, you go to Paul Lucas's site, UniWatch, and he just had beyond the definitive article on Travis Darno's D. First of all, Travis Darno is one of three Mets with a lowercase D to begin their name. Can you name at least one of the other Mets? Current Mets. Current Met with Current Met? Farm system Mets? No. Or three out of one, 25. One's, one's an extremely obscure player, and the other one is part of Generation uh, Arm, or whatever we're going to call these guys. DeGrom? <laughs> yes, DeGrom. DeGrom. Yes. Generation Arm. <laughs> And then there was also Matt Dendecker, who was uh, not only my most beloved Grimm's fairy tale, but he's not on the Mets anymore. So an excellent detail from UniWatch is that there are no lowercase d's available to the equipment manager, and the lowercase letter bedevils equipment managers. So what did he do for the lowercase d? Took a P, turned it upside down. That's Darno's lowercase d. And the (laughs) other great detail in this, so to throw out the first ball or some other official function, New York's mayor, Bill de Blasio, comes up. What do they do with the lowercase letters in de Blasio? Just ignore him. He got all block letters, Bill Mm. de Blasio. Finally, final note, Mets got swept by the Pirates. Mr. Demet. How did Mr. Met accuse Ron Darling? Can he talk now? Mr. Demet. They showed him gesticulating, and then it was subtitled. (laughs) (laughs) Mrs. Met was also at the game. She's a cutie. I like Mrs. Met. I shouldn't say that. She's a married baseball, anthropomorphized baseball. (laughs) Stefan, what is your pink gift bag? Well, the New York Times ran a story over the weekend about the new extra long extra point in the NFL since the Canadian Football League also moved the line of scrimmage for the one-point conversion to 25 yards from the goalposts, and the CFL season is full-on, it sent a reporter up to Montreal to see how things are going. David Waldstein led with the fact that Montreal Alouettes kicker Boris Bede, 
Bidet? It's got to be B. No, it can't okay. be Bidet. <laughs> Made league history on July 25th when he launched the first rule-mandated 32-yard extra point. He missed. But in the second quarter, Bede hit a 32-yarder and became the first player to make a convert, as it's called in Canada, from the new distance. Did you know it's called a convert, Josh? I did not know that. I did not. Yeah. Waltzstein added that in the NFL this year, the line of scrimmage for extra points will be pushed back from the two-yard line to the 15, making it a 32-yard kick instead of a 19-yarder. Other reporters south of the border also have written that the new NFL convert is 32 yards long. The only problem, it's not. It's 33 yards long, and it didn't used to be 19 yards. It was 20, and that's because the snap on extra points and field goals is almost universally eight yards and has been since at least the 1980s. Now, I understand that most people don't pay much attention to snap length, and the seven-yard snap is one of those iconic sports numbers embedded in the brains of certain fans and reporters over, say, 40 Consider Tom Dempsey's record-setting 63-yard field goal in 1970. The snap was noteworthy because Saints holder Joe Scarpati suggested adding a yard to the normal seven-yard snap to give Dempsey room to kick a lower-trajectory ball that would clear the Lions' line. The only caveat here, if a point-after-touchdown snap is a fraction less than eight yards to just inside the 23-yard line, the length of the kick would indeed be considered 32 yards because, per NFL rules, you round down to the nearest hash mark. But I asked some of my kicking friends about snap length, unanimously eight. Mike Leach of the Cardinals, who was my snapper when I was with the Broncos, he's been in the league for 16 years, says, Mike, I don't recall ever seeing a seven-yard snap in the NFL. But he's heard reporters talk about the 32-yard PAT also. Why? Because media members aren't very bright, Mike wrote. Don't be offended, media members. Mike did append an emoji, an emoji wink. (laughs) Brad D'Aloiso, kicked in the NFL from 1991 to 2001, said the snap was eight yards when he arrived. It had increased from seven, he notes, because players were getting bigger, faster, and stronger. So kickers wanted a bit more time and space to avoid leapers and rushers on the line. Brad does concede that because of his snapper's ball rotation, you want the laces to arrive facing the goalposts, he started in the league a hair short of eight yards, so technically his early extra points were 19 yards. Nate Keating, hang-up friend, I haven't seen a seven-yard snap forever. Jay Feely entered the league in 2001, said the same thing. Reporters writing about kicking, Feely notes, are idiots and ignorant. Many problems in that article, he said of the Times story. Harsh. Especially the assertion that kick got under the old point after because it was so close, but a 32-yard kick requires more power and a lower trajectory, making it easier to block. That's bullshit, says Feely. I kicked an extra point exactly the same as a 50-yard field goal. Another hang-up friend, Billy Cundiff, told me that high school snaps are still seven yards. He thinks that's because kickers want to spot the ball like the extra point used to be spotted in the NFL on the 10-yard line, and the extra point line of scrimmage in high school is the three. I didn't know that. In any case, kudos to American reporters who are saying 33 yards, and I will grant those reporters writing 32 or 33 yards credit for understanding the technical aspect of NFL snap placement rules which they don't, but shame on everyone else. As for Canada, I did notice in the Times photo of Boris Bede attempting the first long PAT, the spot of the ball does appear to be inside the 33, which would in fact be a 32-yarder. I asked hang-up Canadian friend Bruce Arthur, a lot of friends in this in this afterball. I asked Bruce Arthur for clarification. Jay Feely was a friend too, you didn't mention that. He was that. a friend too, I didn't <laughs> mention that either. Yeah, Feely, you're also a friend, you want to slightly Jay. 
Bruce passed me on to the CFL. He's got friends everywhere. Vice President for Football Operations, Kevin McDonald. Head statistician, Steve Daniel, confirmed that Canadian snaps are indeed seven yards. We've always been seven yards back, McDonald wrote to me. Daniel added that some field goal snaps do go to eight yards very rarely. I'm still perplexed. Why would Canada be different? I probably should talk to some American kickers and snappers who have kicked and snapped in Canada. Or I should just accept that this is one more reason why Canada is Canada. We love you, Canada. Does bidet spray it right down the middle? <laughs> you were saving that up, weren't I you? I was. Yeah. I didn't want to interrupt you. You had a flow going. I did. Josh, what's your pink Speaking bag? Speaking of bidet. Over the weekend, I celebrated the two-year anniversary of writing a blog post about how baseball player Chris Getz used the theme song for the video game RBI Baseball as his designated theme tune for when he walked to home plate. No gifts needed for the two-year anniversary. Happy anniversary. Thank you. In that post, I pointed out the existence of the website Designated Hits, which catalogs every song used by every major league player. So you can know in an instant that the Orioles' Zach Britton uses ACDCs. For those about to rock, we salute you. He's a relief pitcher. When does he come to bat? <laughs> <laughs> you know, he comes in. No, no, no. Yeah, the, he gets the okay, walk-in okay, music okay, from fine, the bullpen. At bat right. and bullpen music. All right. The Nationals' Jose Lobatone goes with Pitbull's Don't Stop the Party. I could go on all day. Um, but if you look through every entry for every team, there's nothing that will really shock you. There's some country, some rock, some hip-hop, some Christian music, a few audio puns, like David Wright's Pick of the Right Stuff by New Kids on the Block. The number one pick of Major League players, according to another site, MLBplatemusic.com, is Little John's Turn Down for What? The RBI baseball thing was worth noting because it was a rare moment of walk-up music creativity. Because I want to encourage that sort of thing. I did a little thought experiment over the weekend, asked a few friends, pondered the question, what is the strangest walk-up song you could possibly choose? So I picked five. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to play number one right now. Here's the first clip. And to be clear, none of these actually are being currently no, used. No, these are just my suggestions. Okay. All right, here's They're clip. available is what you're saying. Here's clip one. Longer than there have been fishes in the ocean. Higher than any bird ever flew. Stepping to the plate, Longer number five, <laughs> Stefan Fatsis. Fatsis. All right, that was Longer by Dan uh, Fogelberg. Yeah. All right, here is uh, clip number two. Uh, Mike, I think this is one for you that you would, can you I, would enjoy. Can I do my Robert Shepard? <laughs> 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 this is the NBA on NBC theme song. <laughs> so that one's a little bit weird because uh, it's a basketball song. Why wouldn't would, why would you choose that? Funny. You're a basketball fan? You're a baseball player who's a, just a big basketball You're fan. You're Danny Ainge? That's a great point. All right. You're Dave DeBusher? Here's, here's clip number three. Juven Throat Singers. <laughs> nice. <laughs> This is Tovin Throat Singing by Hun Her Too. That's good. Yeah. I could see pitchers complaining, like, with a flashy object in the background. No, no, no. I can't deal with that. How am I doing so far? I love it. This is great. 
I'm coming out <laughs> just my needed own some, talk. Just needed some affirmation. Yeah. Did Steve Yeager? Steve Yeager could have used that music. Because? Because he got hit in the throat with a broken bat. Oh. Remember that? I did not remember that. Yeah. Oof. That was grim. On the on-deck circle. All right. Here's clip number four. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, la, 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 H, I, J, K, L, M, N, la, 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 O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, la, la, la. That's good. That's good. <laughs> Someone who just had a kid? Yeah. <laughs> or like, you know, a player with a scrabbly last name, lots of Z's. And yeah. Mark uh, Zapinski. Zapinski. Yeah. Right. Ripchinski. Scrabble, yeah. Ripchinski. That one, so you're saying that one's probably the leading candidate for someone to actually use, mm-hmm. that that would be defensible. Well, the throat singing's pretty good. All right, here's my, my last clip, and then maybe we can get some suggestions from you guys. Just the moroseness. That's a quality that's really missing. From walk up music. from walk up music, yeah, death to everyone. That's not really a sentiment that you get. No, no Bonnie, no Bonnie Prince Billy in the in the walk up music. Pesca, what are your thoughts? All right, first we're gonna just like just spitball in here as we talk. First, I'd go with this. We'll get to the chorus in a second. This is Bing Crosby's The Whiff and Poof song. <laughs> just, you know, associations with whiffs. Second one would be this. Better way than just to call it what it is. It's the monkey song, and it's about the monkey theory of evolution that refutes the Bible account of creation. Robin and Crystal Bernard. So that is Robin and Crystal Bernard. Crystal Bernard went on to become a, a TV star in later uh, seasons of Happy Days doing one of their anti-evolution hits, The Monkey Song. This is a song from my childhood. The visual is important. It's a sing- The Singing Pills. <laughs> Another one. This uh, is pretty much self-explanatory. Patty Page took this, How I think, to top ten. much is that dog in the window? <laughs> the one with the waggly tail. How much is that I just, dog I think that that would get in the pitcher's brain. And I think the um, least appropriate walk-up song is this one. Janice Ian's at 17. 
I don't know. Bases loaded, pressure situation. He's he's hitting 258 with runners in scoring position, but 374 when Janice Ian's in at 17 plays him up to bat. I think that was Luis Polonia's walk-up music. <laughs> oh, well done. Thank you. All right. I think uh, I think we're good. I think we're good. I think we're good. How can we be better? We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. Send us your uh, inappropriate walk-up music. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and listen to iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash slatepodcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash listen. Zach Dinerstein produced today's show. Our producer is Mike Polo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. And the executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.